1 through 10. Hear the word of the Lord. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning, good morning. If I have not met you, my name is Gabe Coyle. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's great to be together. And interestingly enough, uh, this morning, and a morning actually a lot like this morning, it reminded me of a moment before email when a thing called Instant Messenger was just breaking in on the scene. Some of you remember this? Uh, some of you are like, what are you talking about? Um, and something really amazing happened to me. It was, I was in sixth grade. And it was January, and I got mail, like physical mail. Not my mom, not my sisters, but me. And do you remember that first time you got mail on purpose? Like it wasn't an accident, like they didn't think you were someone else, or they thought you were 18 and trying to give you a credit card offer, or it wasn't from your grandma. Like you got like mail on purpose. You remember that? It was so exciting. Well, and what, to top it off, it was a package from my church. And I was so ecstatic. You know what it was? It was a box of envelopes. <laughs> and now you need to understand, I, w I was a part, my family and I were a part of church that was about 2,000 folks, and they would send these envelopes to everybody, these tithes and offering envelopes to everybody in the church, even little sixth graders like myself, and it had like your name on it and the date, and they were all organized for some 52 weeks, so you could kind of keep track when you were there and when you weren't, you know, like, and so it was, it was really exciting, and to be honest, I was pumped that I got mail, <laughs> and I got it from my church. But I wasn't super excited that it was about, like, giving my money away, which in sixth grade was mo mostly my mom's money anyway. Um, and I started thinking about this when we came to our passage this morning. And I was curious, what about you? Like, what do you think about when you see this? If you're curious what this is, <laughs> we don't have a whole lot of markings on it. It's actually a Christ Community Ties and Offerings envelope that usually sits on that offering box up there. What feelings are conjured up? just by this piece of paper? Is it guilt? Joy? Frustration? Maybe a low-grade anger? The higher it goes up, the more your guard goes up. I don't know. Like, what are the feelings that you have when you see this? And where do those come from? Who informed those feelings? Who has shaped your response to this little piece of paper? And this is fairly big, isn't it? Because it's not even just about giving in the church, is it? I mean, how many end-of-year giving requests did you receive in the mail from various organizations? Or when you're turning across 
different channels and you come to a telethon or you hear about a catastrophe that happens someplace in the nation or someplace across the world and they're asking for generosity in order to bring relief in that area of the world. How does that initial request hit you? That initial ask. I don't care who you are, even if you feel like you have the most altruistic of heart, that first moment, that very initial ask, when you hear it, when you get it received, that very first moment, generosity feels more like a burden than an opportunity, doesn't it? Generosity feels more like a burden than an opportunity. You think about all the things you're going to have to give up rather than the opportunity that's before you. Have you thought about why that is? Why does generosity more broadly feel like a burden than an opportunity? Because the research actually shows time and again that those who live a more generous lifestyle are happier, are healthier, have more robust relationships with other people. For example, there was a study out by the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke, and they worked collaboratively with the National Institute on Mental Health and the National Institute on Aging, so three powerhouse institutions. And they discovered that there's a physiological basis for the warm glow that you see on people who give in time of need. And here's what they discovered. When you give in time of need, your brain actually helps create or is encouraged to create what's called endorphins, otherwise known as those feel-good chemicals, right? And so in the midst of giving in time of need, you can actually have what they have described as a helper's high. And so the creation of these endorphins actually can cut through thick layers of stress. And living broadly more generously, there are studies time and again that promote that this actually encourages a stronger immune system and actually increases your lifespan. So I digress. But there is book after book, study after study, article after article, that those who live a generous lifestyle actually have more robust joy, more fullness, and greater satisfaction with life. So if that's true, and that's not, that's not just looking in this book, that's broader best practices in research are finding this to be true, and mind-boggling so. If that's true, why is it that generosity still feels like a burden? rather than an opportunity, when it clearly is. And, and in almost every other aspect of our life, when we know something is true, when we see something that is really good, but then our bodies respond in a negative way to it, we know something is deeply wrong with us, don't we? So what do we do when we hear that generosity broadly, living a generous life, is actually a promoter to the good life that Jesus calls us to, that we've been designed for, and yet it feels like to you and me a burden rather than an opportunity? What do we do? Well, if you're new, we've been walking through a three-week series where we're listening to Jesus as he kind of reorients our understanding of some of the most crucial components of what it means to be human. He's inviting you and me to this radical life, a life that actually surrenders what is culturally defined as normal to something simply different, simply better, not necessarily simply easier but better nonetheless. Last week, we looked at our time, didn't we? And our, our management of time, and we saw how Jesus invites us to something radical where if we put him as the priority, not priorities, but priority of our life, we can maximize our time and simultaneously guard against the ruthlessness of hurry. And today, we're going to focus in on hearing from Jesus and what happens when we let him reorient our minds, our thinking around our money, our possessions, and what we broadly mean by our lifestyle. And here's what we're going to discover in the midst of all this. 
we're going to have the opportunity to remember again just how relevant this book is to the struggles that you and I face every day as Jesus speaks into your life and mine. So if you haven't already, would you please turn with me in your Bibles to the passage that was just read, Luke chapter 19. If you are using one of our community Bibles, it's easy to find. It's on page number 878. And while you're turning there, let me set the scene at this point. In Luke's gospel account, he's been setting up the story, and there's been a lot of different episodes up to Luke chapter 19. And so far, we're seeing that now at Jesus' ministry, he's kind of a celebrity. He draws large crowds, and you have rich rulers and beggars who simultaneously want Jesus' time, his attention, his healing, and his wisdom. Everywhere Jesus goes, especially when he comes to Jericho, people begin to swarm. He's famous. But Jesus isn't the only famous person in our story this morning. There's another person who's maybe a little more infamous. Um, and if you grew up in the church, you've heard his name before. He's the kind of guy that when his name is spoken in the first century, it sent chills down most common folks' spine. Sure, he may have been really popular with the aristocracy, the who's who in Jericho. But his name made elderly women spit. I mean, this guy, his name is Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector of Jericho. And as the tax collector, he's despised for a couple reasons. First, the tax collector job was associated with Rome, and Rome was associated with oppression, exploitation, and pure abuse. So you just got guilty by association. Your job, you're hired by Rome. We therefore do not like you. Secondly, how a tax collector makes a living is very repulsive. And here's how the tax collector. It was common knowledge, was paid by how much he required the tax to be over and above what Rome required it. So if Rome said, hey, there's a five-cent tax on every dollar, the only way he got paid was by charging above that. So maybe a seven-cent tax on the dollar, and there was a two-cent service fee. It's better than StubHub, but still, it's a bit oppressive, right? So when we read that Zacchaeus is not only the tax collector, but... He's the chief tax collector, the guy who oversees other tax collectors, the one who trains tax collectors on how to do their job to get the money that they so desperately need. We know that no one gets to that role by being lenient to the poor. And also Luke makes it really explicit here by saying that Zacchaeus is rich. Now, everybody who's reading this story in the first century or hearing this story would have assumed Zacchaeus was rich. Then to assume that he's the chief tax collector, of course he's rich. So for Luke to highlight that he's rich is to highlight just how exorbitant the wealth of Zacchaeus is. And once again, this is the wealth he has gained from taxing people, vulnerable folks who survive on subsistence living. This guy is an economic oppressor in his neighborhood. So Jesus wasn't the only one with a reputation in Jericho. Zacchaeus has his nicknames that I won't mention but while Zach was collecting taxes from merchants, this was also Jericho's along the King's Highway. This is an ancient highway where most trade would come through. He would hear the stories of this guy named Jesus. He would hear of his miracles, of his teachings, of who he claimed to be, of who people were saying he might be. And he just had to get a glimpse, hearing that he was coming through Jericho. But there's one other thing, and maybe this is the most memorable thing we think about when it comes to Zacchaeus if you have heard this story before, and that was that he wasn't the tallest guy in the room. And that did not help you in a crowded situation, okay? Now, interestingly enough, Zacchaeus has status. So if there was a crowd, he could command the crowd to move, and he could go to the front of the crowd. 
but he doesn't. What you notice here in our passage is something really interesting. And if you look at it through first century ancient Near Eastern eyes, this is a really disgraceful thing he does. He runs to the front of the crowd. Zacchaeus doesn't run for anyone. Zacchaeus has status. He has a reputation. He walks. People run to him. But here, he runs. A really disgraceful act in front of the crowd to get up in this little tree so that he can get a look at this man named Jesus. And let's look at what happens. Look with me at Luke 19, verse 5. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Can you imagine being there in that moment? This is like the payday loan officer, the local loan shark, who earlier in that day was knocking on your door telling you you need to pay up or else... And suddenly when Jesus comes into a crowd surrounded by the vulnerable, the oppressed, the broken, he looks at the oppressor, the one who's trying to get a glimpse of Jesus, and Jesus sees him. And Jesus doesn't just talk to Zacchaeus, he invites himself over to his house, which is a very, very intimate thing in the first century. There's a lot of, if you go to someone's house, you are saying you are in many ways in agreement with them at least by public opinion, because there's no way you would go over to someone's house if you completely disagreed with how they were navigating their lives. This was a huge honor bestowed upon Zacchaeus. I mean, for me, the way I thought about it is if I was walking down the sidewalk and there's Justin Timberlake, <laughs> and he's like, hey, Gabe, I'm coming over to your house. And I was like, yeah, you are. And now, but <clears throat> if he were to say that to me, I would be shocked. And then everybody who knows me would be like him. And that's exactly what's going on here but to the nth degree, everyone, and I mean everyone, is shocked. Look at verse 7. We read, and when they, this is the whole crowd, when they saw it, they all grumbled at Jesus. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. The crowd is frustrated. They grumbled. Another way of saying it is that they complained about Jesus' clearly ill-informed decision. Now, if you look throughout the life of Jesus, there are two things that really gets the crowds up in arms. The first, they really freak out whenever Jesus claims to be the Messiah, the Son of God. But the second, and maybe even more so do they freak out, is when Jesus breaks their hospitality rules. I mean, you can kind of feel the tension in the crowd when Jesus addresses Zacchaeus and says he's coming over. You don't go over to the people, you don't go over to the house of people like Zacchaeus. Do you know what he does? Do you know where he got all of his wealth? Do you know what he just did to my neighbor last week? This guy's awful. Didn't you come to proclaim good news to the poor? And now you're hanging out with this oppressor? But what about Zacchaeus? This chief tax collector who gained all of his wealth by defrauding the poor, the vulnerable, the widow. Look at verse 6. It says, Zacchaeus hurried and came down and received Jesus joyfully. Joyfully. He's overwhelmed with joy. He's just blown away. I mean, can you imagine the surprise he must have felt everyone? And I mean nearly everyone except for maybe some other very wealthy oppressors. The aristocracy in Jericho hated him. Maybe Jericho ha or, uh, Zacchaeus hated himself. We don't know. But what we know is that as fast as he could, he hurries down that tree, he obeys Jesus, and he receives Jesus with this overwhelming joy. And Jesus came to his house. And I can't help but imagine this banquet. Now, it was really common 
for people of Zacchaeus' status that when he would throw a banquet of this sort, when somebody would come over to his house, he would invite people of similar status. So it's not far-fetched to imagine all the elites in Jericho seated around the table with Zacchaeus and Jesus. And Jesus looking around at this quite exorbitant home, knowing where the money came from, knowing how this comfort was supplied. And suddenly Zacchaeus does something. It's completely unprompted. It's not that Jesus, we don't see anywhere in here that Jesus makes this demand, but it's unprompted. It comes out of Zacchaeus. It kind of just bubbles out of him. In verse 8, we see Zacchaeus stood, which just so you know, he's making a statement. Nobody stands. Like Zacchaeus doesn't have to stand for anybody. Everybody else stands when they come to approach Zacchaeus. So Zacchaeus stands. He's making a statement before all of these elites, before Jesus. And he says to the Lord, behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. When, Jesus, when, when Zacchaeus experiences Jesus, when he receives Jesus as Lord, he sees everything he owns differently. And he takes these two bold steps, these huge steps. First is he says, everything that I own, all these goods, I'm going to give half of it to the poor, which isn't just to say his salary. That means Zacchaeus goes through a significant downsizing. Do you see this? Half of what I have, I'm going to give it to the poor. Maybe he took it to the you know, ancient Jericho Craigslist or whatever, you know, and got it all out there and gave the money to the poor. However he does it, he says, I'm going to give half of everything I have to the poor. And then with what's left, he's committed to restitution. If I've defrauded, which is a bit of, you know, tongue-in-cheek, if I've defrauded anyone, I will pay them back fourfold, which is the most extreme form in the law. Do you understand that? So, so some aspects of the law say you just have to pay back double what you took. But Zacchaeus takes on the most extreme form of restitution upon himself and says, I'm going to do what I think is right, which is go the ex most extreme and, and repay fourfold of anyone I've defrauded. He's all in. He gets it. And what did Zacchaeus get here that we so often forget? He gets that when you've received Jesus' grace, you can't help but radically give. When you've received Jesus' grace, when you're the overlooked, when you're the forgotten, when you don't have no right to be sitting there with Jesus and then suddenly he chooses to see you, when you've received Jesus' grace, you can't help but radically give. I mean, before Jesus came, Zacchaeus, he was pressing the bounds at how far he can oppress people to increase his wealth and his status. But then after spending time with Jesus, after tasting grace, when he knew he didn't deserve Jesus' presence, his heart, it overflows into a just kind of generosity. A generosity that, yes, fulfills requirements, but then goes above and beyond. I mean, before Jesus, Zacchaeus couldn't tell where his life was going or why it was going. The only thing he could think was accumulate more money, which then would get him more status, which would then get him more happiness. And yet that's contrary to every study we see, even still now, right? That's not the pathway to joy. That is not the good life that we've been designed for and that Jesus is calling us to. He was upside down in his greed. And of course, Zacchaeus is lost because when more is your true north, you're always going to be confused. You're going to lose your way. But what we find is that Jesus found him, isn't it? 
I mean, when no one else was looking for him, Jesus finds him. And that's what he says he's come to do. Yes, to come for the oppressed, but also the oppressor. Jesus' grace is sometimes very infuriating if you are on one end of the spectrum of the other. Because he's come to save and to seek the lost, wherever they may be. Look at verse 9. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus came to seek and to save people who are so turned around that they thought generosity was a burden instead of an opportunity. I mean, can you imagine the tears in Zacchaeus' eyes in that moment? This wee little man, right? With deep pockets filled with money that was garnered through unjust means. And he now stands before the Son of God who calls him a son of Abraham, a true child of God, accepted, free. Can you imagine the beauty in that moment? And, and don't you, isn't there a part of your heart that just aches that wants that to be more true of you? If you want to be free, free. Free enough to know the joy of generosity. I mean, why does generosity feel so much like a burden rather than an opportunity? Why is it when we're given the chance, it just feels like this major obstacle and burden that we have to carry rather than a great opportunity that God's laid before us? I wonder if it might just be because we haven't received Jesus. So I want to ask you this morning, have you received Jesus all the way into your lifestyle? All the way into your lifestyle. You see, Jesus doesn't want just your heart or what we often mean by our heart. Jesus doesn't just want your life or what we often mean by our life. He wants what consumes our hearts and what often our lives revolve around, and that's our money, our possessions, and our broader lifestyle. Because he wants to give you joy. It's not because he's trying to get something from you, but he wants to give something to you, and it's, it's for you. Have you received Jesus all the way into your lifestyle? And I was thinking, you know, there's got to be a helpful way to get at this a little bit better because I'm a really good self-deceiver. Um, and so one way to better tell whether Jesus has been invited all the way into your lifestyle is to do a lifestyle audit, a lifestyle audit. Now, you notice I didn't say budget because the interesting thing about a budget is that we can hide kind of our excessive lifestyle under titles that we determine are necessities. So if you bought a house or a loft that is outside of your income, we just label that rent or mortgage, and that's a necessity. I gotta have a roof over my head. You buy a model car that is way outside of your margin, and we say, well, that's transportation. I've gotta get places. Or we, we buy a particular pair of designer jeans, which there's nothing wrong with designer jeans, but if you buy a pair of designer jeans or you buy six pairs of designer jeans, suddenly it's underneath clothing, and we say, well, I can't walk around naked. <laughs> Please don't. That's not what Jesus <laughs> is calling us to. But so easily when we look at our budget, we can hide our excessive lifestyle under titles that we determine are necessities. So do a broader lifestyle audit. What do you own? What resources does it take to keep the things you own up? Because that's always the hidden cost, isn't it? If you have a really large house, maybe you can afford the mortgage, but can you afford the utilities? You know, all of these different pieces. Then ask, do you need that size house, loft, car, that many pairs of jeans? And does your lifestyle have the capacity so that you can show generosity and so be a blessing to the vulnerable in your community? 
Does your lifestyle at all have a countercultural scope to it? Does your lifestyle at all look any bit, any bit different from those who make the same income as you because of Jesus? And maybe I'll ask a, a, another radical question. Have you ever invited someone that you know, love, and trust who also knows, loves, and trusts Jesus to look at your lifestyle? Because for me, I'm really good at saying I'm really good at generosity. Um, I'm like, man, did you see what this cost me? I mean, this was like, this was huge. This was, and then Allie will say, come on. <laughs> My wife is much better at this than I am. She's a good sharper. She's like, Gabe, get real. That doesn't even buy a shoe. Like, come on. What does generosity look like? What does generosity look like? Have you invited someone into your life? A great space to really sharpen this skill to do a good lifestyle audit is to participate in Financial Peace University. We're going to have that here this spring again. Once again, we don't get anything out of that. That's just a helpful pathway to sharpen the skills so that you can live like no one else today so you can give like no one else tomorrow. To be generous because generosity is a part of the good life that God's calling us to, a life that has more robust joy. It's a great opportunity, but it feels like a burden. And listen, I'm not opposed to nice things. Nice things are, are nice, you know? So don't come up to me after the sermon and start justifying why you needed to buy the big screen TV to practice the discipline of celebration. Like, I get it, okay? Here's my question. My question is, have you overextended nice? Have you overextended nice such that you can't give what you're called to give and then you don't have the margin to give when opportunities arise? Have you overextended nice in your life? And you know what it's going to look like when you receive Jesus all the way into your lifestyle, when you really let him be not just your Savior, but your Lord, and let him show you the good life he's called us to? It means you let Jesus inspire you to give more than you have to now. Without expecting anything in return, not looking for what you're going to get out. This isn't a transaction as it really is a generous unleashing and open-handedness. And isn't that what we see with Zacchaeus? Listen, in the first century, there was a predominance of informal economics. If you gave, especially if you were someone of status and the poor could not quote-unquote repay you, you were expecting honor, praise, and maybe a placard. Like this was definitely a quid pro quo, but not here with Zacchaeus. Half of all I give to the poor without expecting anything in return. It's mind-blowing, truly radical generosity. And in other places, Jesus praises all kinds of people who have all kinds of means for their generosity. Jesus praises the widow who gives her might, the little bit of money she has to the temple. And he says, every, she gave everything she had. And look what a great example of generosity. So I don't want anybody in this room thinking, well, if I was the wealthy fat cat or if I, you know, and start thinking about all these different names of other people because God wants to give you joy too in generosity. This isn't like a great scolding for those who have much because many, God is calling each and every one of us to the joy of generosity. It may look different, but this is an opportunity for all, not a greater burden for some. And don't put it off. You'll notice Zacchaeus didn't say, hey, Jesus, I'm really glad you're here. I'm going to get a couple things in order, and then I'm going to take care of this. And I had this, my sight set on this one spot just a little higher up in Jericho. And then I, 
No, he's there with Jesus, and he experiences Jesus, and right then he's like, I'm going to give half of what I have to the poor, and everything else, everybody else, if I've defrauded them, I'm going to get, you know, bring restitution fourfold. And listen, if you don't start now, it only gets harder. If you put it off and say, hey, I'm in school, I can't. I have a debt right now that I want to pay off, I can't. I have a financial goal I want to meet, I can't. It's never going to happen because there's always another financial goal, and it's only going to get harder because 10% of a growing income seems more absurd the larger that income grows and the, the less you actually take advantage of that. So if you don't start now, you'll never start. And then that little offering envelope is going to feel guilty. It's going to make you angry. You're going to be frustrated. And what you're going to feel is your own conviction more than anything else. And I don't want that for you. Jesus doesn't want that for you. He actually wants joy for you if you'll let him. So start now, start today, and let it grow. Because when, Je when Jesus found Zacchaeus, he didn't make excuses, he, he gave. And you know what he found? Don't you want what he found? I mean, can you imagine what our life would be like, if our, what our city would be like, if this was the radical reorientation of our city and its understanding of its wealth? What our church would be like, what your relationships would be like, what our community I mean, if Jesus was really allowed to inspire us to give more than we absolutely have to, what would that look like? Well, in many ways, the church of today would be like the early church in Acts 2, where everyone who had needs within the community would be met because everybody held things in common. It was, the church was one of the greatest social safety nets there for those who were apart. Churches would no longer, as MLK warned us on economic injustice in his letter from a Birmingham, a letter from a Birmingham jail, he said churches would no longer, or churches would no longer commit themselves to a completely otherworldly religion, which made a strange distinction between body and soul, the sacred and the secular. The church would understand its role in even economic engagement for the city. More churches, churches like Christ Community, some of you know this, some of you don't, a portion of your giving goes to support dynamic institutions, I keep hitting this, dynamic institutions in our city. Strategic partners who are positioned to do really amazing work, who are often under-resourced and overextended, and a portion of your tithes and offering goes to support their good work. So if more money was also given to the church and these partners, they would be buoyed to do dynamic work in our city that last outlasts the founders and individuals, but have institutional framework that goes on to generations. Our city wouldn't be littered with systems of economic oppression that take advantage of the poor. Our city wouldn't need to raise taxes. <laughs> Who likes taxes? Wouldn't need to raise taxes, but could thrive predominantly on local philanthropy, which would make generosity a place of celebration rather than hearing the taxes have raised one more percentage and there's a collective groan it also hits the poor as well as the rich. Both poor and rich would hear their call to be generous in living and so enjoy the dignity and honor that comes in generosity. Community development and city formation would not focus on what we can get from another community or be overly protective on what we can keep in our community, but we would have an economics of surplus that explores means for all to flourish. I mean, more people would know joy. More people would know the freedom from their possessions rather than, than being owned by what they own. And more and more people would be like Rose. Now I've got some folks here who also live in my neighborhood. There's a couple group homes in my neighborhood, and there's this one woman who I really got to know this summer, and her name's Rose, one of the sweetest women I've ever met. 
When she smiles, there's not a whole lot more there than joy. And yet, as I was working on my house, in front, you know, in front of my house, every time she'd walk down the sidewalk, she would come up to me and she would have something to give me, something she found, something that she treasured that she couldn't wait to share with me every time. And so her and I would get into a conversation and she would always have something to give. And actually, just this last Monday, I was walking my dog and who's out there but Rose out on the sidewalk and she says, Gabriel, Gabriel, come here, you know. And so I come over to Rose and she's like, I know you've got this sweet little daughter. And so I found this little locket. Would you give this to her? I was thinking about her when I found it. I think it would look so cute. You can get a little chain for it. I just think it's so sweet. Would you give this to your daughter? I'm so glad you're on the street. And then she had like this bag of fresh made cinnamon rolls. And she goes, would you like a cinnamon roll? <laughs> I said, actually, I just got done running, so I'm going to throw up if I eat it, but it looks delicious. And she was describing how she was going to a couple of the different neighbors to go bring them cinnamon rolls. And she was describing how each of these members in the neighborhood are such wonderful members of the neighborhood and began to just glow about how she's so grateful to be a part of this community. And then she ended the way she always does, you know. Have a blessed day. Bye, Gabriel. Have a blessed day. You too, Rose. You too. And she's just smiling and humming as she keeps walking with her cinnamon rolls. And I still have to give this to Ava. I don't know if I've been a really good father yet, but I'm going to give it to her today. But I think Rose gets it better than we do. And often it's those who have less that get it way more than those who have more. They understand that this is a small price to pay for joy. This is a small price to pay for the opportunities that God has to give us the good life that he's called us to. You see, we have an amazing opportunity, you and I. But we'll only see it if we receive Jesus all the way into our lifestyle. If we'll let him inspire us. Because it's not as easy as just giving a rule. But inspire us to give more than we have to now. So what's stopping you? I can tell you who isn't. It isn't Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you talk more about money than most anything else because you know most of us feel like we're fine with it and yet it has such tight grip on our hearts and our lives God Holy Spirit may you just convict us of guilt for greed which also stems and leads to many systemic oppressions across our city and also just stifles the potential for joy in each individual in this room God, may we trust you, even though generosity may feel like a burden rather than an opportunity. May we trust you. May we have faith in what you say. That that is the way to the good life, to the life we were designed to live, the life we're called to live, the life full of joy. So free our grasp. May what we own not own us, but may it be used for the common good of our city the edification of your church and the glory of your good name. God, we love you. Thank you for all of your generosity towards us. It is in Jesus' name we pray.